This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and happy Mother's Day to my fellow moms out there. Welcome to the Sunday edition of the best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. There was a lot of confusion and criticism this past week over the latest guidance from the National Advisory Committee on Immunization. The chair of NACI suggested the mRNA vaccines, so Pfizer and Moderna, are preferred over the others, notably AstraZeneca. It was soon after other scientific experts and political leaders, including the prime minister, went into damage control, once again insisting the best COVID vaccine is the one you can get first. Fight Back went to two of our own experts to get their thoughts and opinions on the available COVID vaccines. Libby Snymer was joined on Wednesday by epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, and Dr. Colin Furness, an infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. It was really disappointing. I think technically correct to say that side effects are greater or more frequent with the AstraZeneca vaccine, but both numbers are really close to zero. So to say that there's more side effects with one than the other is to kind of ignore the fact that there's hardly any at all, and the risks of getting COVID are much higher. In Ontario, you've got a 50 times higher chance of dying from COVID than having a severe reaction to AstraZeneca. That's a more useful number for people to hear. And I think because trust matters a lot with vaccination, you have to be so careful with how you present these numbers and the message that you're crafting. Dr. Sly, when they went into damage control, they said, oh, well, we were just talking about informed consent. What do you say to that? Well, you know, Libby, uh, the medical fraternity has to be transparent. If they're not transparent, then they lose all credibility. And, of course, that means that even if one rare case is found here and another very rare case over there, we have to announce that and display it. And consequently, it's very understandable that somebody can stop what they're doing for a moment and say, oh, I didn't know that. Maybe I should be worried about that. So what we need to do is to look closely at the real figures. Dr. Furness has just given a very accurate example of the risk of death both times, about 50 times more. Let me give you another figure, and that is the risk of becoming ill with both, either of these two things. In other words, in Ontario right now, the risk of standard uh, random person selected in Ontario, uh, is the risk of, of contracting up-to-date with the uh, COVID-19 is about 3% of becoming a confirmed case. The risk of uh, choosing not to take the vaccine uh, gives you a risk of between 1 in 100,000 and 1 in 500,000. I mean, these are thousands, if you like, tens of thousands of times different, and those are the kinds of balance we should be looking at. Dr. Furness, I mean, 
I agree that science should have no other considerations, but aren't these people at all aware of the impact of the way they're sending their messages out? Well, I like to call it microscope myopia. And so you've got people on NACI who are very smart, very competent, very capable. I don't think anyone's suggesting otherwise. Um, They're extremely capable. But they don't necessarily translate the impact of their thinking, their way of thinking, and the way they use and understand numbers to everybody else. So when you're so immersed in talking to scientists all the time, you might not necessarily really understand what people are going to read into what you say. And I think it would be so helpful if they had a social worker and a psychologist to help them say, what does this mean for people? You know, I think being transparent, as Dr. Sly said, so important. Couldn't agree more. But you've got to do it in a way that people can contextualize and make sense of. As soon as they start to panic, as soon as you lose trust, uh, you do a lot of damage. To try to end on a positive note, uh, Dr. Sly, we're talking about numbers coming down. How much longer do you speculate that this that this uh, wave will last? Oh, Libby, that's the question, isn't it? Uh, listen, we will reach the end of this. All pandemics end. Keep that thought in mind. And it's up to us whether we get that pandemic ended sooner or later. And that depends on how we act and how, how our attitude is and whether we get the vaccines in here and whether we keep on the mitigation. That's, that, that bit of it is up to us. Epidemiologist Dr. Tim Sly, professor at the School of Occupational and Public Health at Ryerson University, and Dr. Colin Furness, an infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. Following this conversation, the chair of NACI qualified her comments by saying people in Canada who got the AstraZeneca vaccine did the right thing to protect themselves and their family members against COVID-19. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. It's been embraced as good news, relief for family members of nursing home residents and the residents themselves. The provincial PCs finally responded to long-standing requests from people in long-term care and their loved ones, easing some restrictions related to socializing and going outside. The new measures allow for residents to be able to resume activities like communal dining and indoor events and gatherings with precautions. And those who are completely immunized may engage in more intimate interactions, like hugging if they choose. Until now, we have heard from listeners complaining that their family members have been confined to their rooms, even when they are fully vaccinated against COVID-19. So clearly, this will greatly help improve the mental and physical health of residents. But there are also concerns that while residents have had their COVID shots, Not all nursing home workers have received their vaccines and are now allowed to work in more than one home. This was a significant factor which contributed to the spread of COVID-19 in the first wave of the pandemic. Joining Libby to discuss, Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. I have to say that uh, we're relieved. Uh, we've got clear guidance now that, that where we have vaccine rates that are high, quite honestly, we think that this is going to incent more people to get vaccines. We hope so. Uh, and it's time for hugs. We've got to bring hugs back. So communal dining coming back in, uh, activities in the home. Uh, so long as the homes are not in outbreak, uh, we can move towards 
normal sea again. And uh, we're, we're, we're very, very pleased because it's, it's been a long 14, 15 months for everybody. And, and it really is uh, time, time to, to, to bring life back into our homes. My understanding, though, is that there are some homes where something like 30% of the workers are not vaccinated. Yeah, and that and that's going to be a problem. Uh, we're hearing that the vaccine rates are increasing, continue to increase, um, with mobile units now moving and the, and the government mobilizing. Uh, we're 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 seeing far better numbers emerge in our homes. Some of our members are as high as ninety five percent vaccine rates for their staff, which is amazing. Um, but uh, we we know that the condition to open up is is going to be required. Uh, it's only going to be possible where homes have an 85 percent uh, percentage of residents being vaccinated and 70 percent of employees being well, immunized. S- sorry, but 70 percent of employees doesn't sound very high to me. It's you know I I think we we're working with government to to get that higher. Uh, and as I said, um, we really want to inc- use this to encourage our employees to, to get vaccinated. And we're working with government to do what we can to, to bring vaccines into the homes so that we can increase the rates. Uh, we are pleased, though, that we, we've we got a starting point. Uh, we still have to follow social distancing and wear masks and do the infection prevention and control uh, protocols. Uh, the key for us is, is really opening the doors again in, in a very measured and thoughtful way. And uh, we certainly support the government's approach and, and do believe that this is a measured first step. Is there anything scientific? You've said that, that you will institute these, these relaxed restrictions. If 85% of residents and 70% of staff are vaccinated, what is, what is that based on? Well, we, we take our advice from from the, from the government on this, and, and the government has has worked this through with the scientific table and public health uh, and the public health guidance. Uh, we are we are going to continue to work very closely with public health, and uh, part of the the new guidance is that uh, it will be up to the public health units to work with our homes and direct our homes to ensure that this is being implemented appropriately. So. Uh, we're, we're going to be partners with public health uh, and uh, make sure that this is done safely and, and uh, well, because number one priority has to be the safety of, of our residents and our staff. And when do you think it'll take effect? Uh, so we're, it was took, took effect yesterday. So um, we're, uh, you know, we're hearing already that uh, they've opened up our, our homes yesterday. We're, we're getting set up for communal dining and bringing uh, people back in together. So um, we're, 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 we're quite happy about that. Uh, but it is going to be a process and, and, you know, we anticipate there are going to be some bumps and hiccups. Uh, we've certainly seen throughout the last 14 months, different public health units have different directions. So we want to ensure that there's clarity and consistency across the province. So everybody knows, again, that transparency about which homes are able to open up is going to be very, very key for, for all of us. Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, one man's fight against his 98-year-old mother's move from hospital to a long-term care home without his or her consent. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. 
Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. It was late last month, Ontario's health minister announced an emergency order allowing hospital administrators to move some patients out of hospitals and into long-term care homes without their consent in order to free up resources and staff for hospitalized COVID patients. This was the scenario that faced Zoomer Radio listener Harry, who joined Fight Back to tell the story of his mother's experience being transferred unwillingly, which has been both stressful for her and the rest of the family. You know, my mom uh, lived at home up until uh, December, and wow. she lived with my sister, who uh, who has uh, is developmentally uh, challenged. Uh, and it, it it reached a, a climax in just before Christmas when uh, she, she was forced to be hospitalized. And uh, and prior to that, she was totally she and my sister were totally against the idea of moving to a long term care uh, facility uh, prior to uh, COVID and even more so after the you know the COVID experience. Well, who could blame them? Yeah, exactly. And uh, my mom was put on a prioritized uh, basis, highest uh, priority to to be relocated to um, uh, a long-term care home. So there she sat from there until uh, last week, late last week. Uh, you know, prior to last week, I was aware of a threat of moving her out of the area. I had been approached as her power of attorney to consider moving her to a temporary, uh, it was actually beds where the hospital system had rented beds, but this was outside, this was like an hour from, from, from the hospital where she was. So I, we were aware of the threat, but it, it was, you know, when, when those that, that uh, made the proposal to us uh, understood the situation, they backed away. On Thursday of uh, last week, 3 o'clock, I received a call advising me, and from someone who I'd never dealt with before, that in fact my mom was going to be moved the next day out of town uh, to a facility that was being rented by the hospital system. Uh, And when I expressed surprise and disappointment and and that this was... uh, was contrary to what I was hearing out of the mouth of the Minister of Health, uh, you know, they said, well, the decision has been made, and uh, we're just calling to advise you that she'll be moving tomorrow. So, and, of course, you know, I had to care for my sister, too, who was having, you know, an emotional reaction to all of this, as was my mom. My mom, quite frankly, oof. Sorry to hear that. I'm not going to say what my mom said. Sorry, Libby. I gather that there was a good resolution to this um, once you told them that you were going public with this. Yeah, I mean, who knows? I mean, (laughs) is it all a coincidence? But I did uh, receive a message an hour ago that my mom, in fact, is going to be transferred to her her long-term care facility uh, first choice two days from now. And I received that call an hour ago. Now, uh, 
you know, did things just, you know, did, is it all coincidence? I mean, you can draw your own conclusions. But, and you uh, told them you were going to tell your story here on Fightback, right? I did. So if you, if you want to take some of the credit, uh, I'm happy to pass that message on to my mom. <laughs> well, we're we're really happy that it is going to be resolved in a good way and really sorry for all the aggravation that especially your mom and and your sister had to go through. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, but, you know, I ho- hopefully hopefully people will learn and that some of the inefficiencies or lack of transparency or lack of coordination will benefit others. I mean, I did this for my mom, but I hope others will. I hope that it'll, it'll end up in a better system for everyone. Zoomer Radio listener Harry with his personal story of his 98-year-old mother's transfer from hospital to a long-term care facility without his or her consent. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Throughout the pandemic, we've hailed grocery workers as heroes. But that appreciation does not extend to their paychecks. Loblaw, the country's largest and most profitable grocery chain, has long since canceled the $2 an hour pandemic pay hike they brought in during the first wave of COVID-19. In response to the pressure to reinstate it, a so-called worker appreciation bonus was announced. Jerry Diaz is national president of Unifor, which represents Loblaw employees. He calls the bonuses, which range from $25 to $175 per worker, chump change. Jerry Diaz joined Libby on Tuesday. They called us to give us notice, thinking somehow that we would be celebrating their incredible uh, gift. See, Sarah Davis, the CEO of Loblaws, last Friday was her last day. She was retiring with her $6.4 million wages and her $1.35 million bonus. So she thought as a parting gift she should share with her employees. And so that's what she did. They awarded $175 uh, to those employees who are full-time and to uh, $25 to those that are part-time. And uh, just how profitable is Loblaw? Uh, they've made over a billion dollars in profits last year uh, during the pandemic. They are much more profitable than any time in their history pre-pandemic. So they're printing money right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, the, for grocery stores that are operating, they are doing well, generally. They are at the top of the food chain, for lack of a better choice of words. So they are doing incredibly well. Their their executives are doing very well. But if you can imagine, it's also straight collusion with them, Metros, and Sobeys, because they all introduced the $2 an hour pandemic pay in March of last year. Then in June, they said, look, it looked as if the pandemic is under control and took away the $2 an hour. So here we are now in, in May of 2021. They still haven't reinstated the $2. And we know, of course, that with the variants, we're in worse shape today uh, than we have been at any time during the pandemic. So the facts are they should be ashamed of themselves, but they're not because they don't care. Sarah Davis doesn't care. I remember when the Weston family name in Canada was like royalty. Today, they're perceived of everything that's wrong with raw capital. The facts are is that you can criticize them, Libya, the owners can criticize them. They don't care. 
because they're that arrogant. What has the reaction been so far to you calling them out on this? Look, nothing. They they think that what they did was fair and in the, under the circumstances. But I'm not surprised that that would be the reaction because they really just don't care. It's about greed. It's about filthy greed. It's an unmitigated disaster, what they're doing. But they have no conscience. None. I don't know how they get up in the morning and they look at themselves in the mirror. Obviously, they're gold-plated mirror, but the facts are is that they don't care. Do you think that there's going to be any difference? I mean, the province has just cut back on the number of people allowed in a grocery store. Uh, they've they've cut back from 50% capacity allowed to 25%. Do you think that went into their calculations that since they could have fewer people in the store at a time that they won't be making as much money? No, they uh, that would that would mean that they were thinking about their employees even one iota. The facts are is that they've made more money and are continuing to make more money than they ever have. We're in a pandemic. We're supposed to be pulling together as a nation. Uh, they know that they have frontline workers that are exposed to COVID each and every day, but they don't care about their employees. They don't care about public perception. The bottom line is they care about themselves. When you take $1.35 million bonus, which is more than your wages, and your total compensation is $6.4 million, you don't look at things like normal people. You're living on a pedestal. You're living you know, in a different act, a stratosphere than any, anyone else. The bottom line, Libby, they just don't care. Unifor National President Jerry Diaz in conversation with Libby Snymer on Tuesday. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Michael in Mississauga called about how he came to a decision on which COVID-19 vaccine to get. I was offered the uh, vaccine a month ago. Finally remembered that I was treated for uh, with a blood thinner, and when I read up on the blood thinner, it's for blood clots. I had a talk with my doctor, and he recommended that I get the Pfizer or Moderna. And even yesterday when I got the shot, I was so petrified of getting it, I almost left. Helen in Toronto phoned to weigh in on the recent long-term care report and the future possibility that non-vaccinated personal support workers could end up having contact with nursing home residents. I'm terrified that by putting people into the homes that have not been tested and might be carrying COVID, that what went on in my mother's home, and thank God she's still alive, uh, is going to happen again, that they are putting these people at risk by putting people in. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. 
There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Pat in Toronto, who phoned to talk about the final long-term care COVID-19 commission report and Minister Marilee Fullerton's reaction to it. I think people are missing. There's a difference between government and management. And obviously, she came into government. She can't change the management. I mean, there's a structure. And, you know, I I realize it frustrates people, but they have to understand that. And you don't necessarily get the best people working in government. And I think that's what's been shown here. And, you know, I feel very sorry for the lady. Probably what she should have done, if she felt strongly about it, is resigned and left to say, look, this thing's out of control. But otherwise, she's dealing with weak people below her. She's dealing with no money. You know, I mean, money is short. And, you know, I mean, we talk about fixing this. We can fix it, but it's going to cost a lot of money. And who's going to pay? That's that's the big issue. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and call our Fightback voicemail anytime at 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.